Hello, and welcome to Pop Culture Hangfire with Christian and Gabriel. podcast where Gabriel and I talk through the 80s about pop culture and everything that came out. The year, 1989, George H.W. Bush was inaugurated as the 41st President of the United States. Serial killer Ted Bundy was executed in the electric chair at Florida State Prison. Toyota launches its luxury brand, Lexus. And the registered partnership law is passed in Denmark, which grants same-sex couples many of the rights and responsibilities of marriage. 1989. All right, Denmark. Right? Let's see who was born in 1989, Gabe. This is a sad one for me because I thought he was such a good actor. And uh, and it's unfortunate that he passed in 2016. Uh, Anton Yelchin. Are you familiar with him? And if you're not, I'll tell no. you I'll tell you that you are. You just didn't know you are. That's how good he yeah, was. Yeah, that's, that's so, what I figured. What's the end? So you'll know him most from the Star Trek reboot from um, from the yep. uh, 2013, he 2016. Was Chekhov. He was Chekhov, yeah. A really, really great actor. There was a movie called The Green Room where he is part of a punk band playing at some uh at some Nazi barn, right? Like uh yeah. It's it's crazy, right? So the story is like this punk band and I'm telling you the 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 dudes it's it's one of those indie films. It's it's so good. So anyway, they're playing at a at a uh, they're playing at this they're they're a punk band you know they go where they're 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 they, you know they're 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 living out of their van, and they happen to be hired for a a Nazi event and they go and play but they're not happy about it and it's punk so they're like you know saying shit about Nazism and everything, so anyway, when they go into their green room uh, quote unquote they happen to see a crime committed, and. Then they are basically like held hostage in that room because they're like, well, you can't go now because you saw what happened. And uh, the leader of the of the Nazi group is actually Patrick Stewart, Sir, Sir Pat Stew. And it is it is a horror thriller, bro, because Damn. then um, this group of Nazis is trying to kill them. And it is gruesome. It is it is graphic as hell. It is a, a fantastic movie, man. Like I, I was like, "Fuck, what a good actor!" And then, yeah, he had a very unfortunate accident, where uh, oh, the movie Odd Thomas was really good with him in it too. Um, there was a very unfortunate accident though, where he he was so the parking of his house was at a slope, and uh, you, he would drive the car to the top of the slope and then walk down to close the door and lock it. And I guess the emergency brake didn't didn't grab, and it actually came. Oh, no. Yeah, it was such an unfortunate, unfortunate thing, dude. He was like 27 years old when he passed. Like, yeah. at the height of his career, dude. Like, he was on the third Star Trek movie that that had just closed. He was doing really great work, and um, and yeah, it was just such a sad, sad fucking thing. Because he was such a good actor. But yeah, he he was born in. That's 89. a that's a wild accident. That's shitty. It is. It is. 
Yeah, no, it's just it, like I, I every time I think of, of, of that, I'm like so many different ways to go. That one just seems like a shitty way to go. You know, again, I, I knew nothing about him as a as a human being, but I know from his work and, and from interviews, he seemed like a really nice young person. Yeah, he seemed real sweet. Yeah, in his interviews. exactly. Exactly. Taryn Egerton is also born in 1989. Best known for me for the Kingsman movies. I think those movies are, they were, even though the, the, like they're not doing something innovative, but somehow the cast and the writing was, was felt new and different and very exciting. I think those movies are fantastic. I, I actually think he did a really fantastic job as Elton John in the, in the rocket man movie. Um, but yeah, no, uh, he seems like a really nice, cool guy. Also same scenario where like, you get that feeling that he seems to be that guy. Yeah. Just want to call out that he is Welsh. I have a Welsh co-worker, so now I'm more aware of Welsh people and the Welsh yeah. things. <laughs> the Welsh community. The Welsh community. <laughs> um, he's actually in that uh, in that new Tetris movie where they tell a story of Tetris. Oh, yeah? It seems like an interesting film, but I don't know how I feel about it still. Just going to put it out. <laughs> and then lastly, we have Juno Temple. I only know her from one thing that I'm familiar with enough, and it's it's Ted Lasso. She mm. she plays the um, the PR person, the girlfriend to Jamie and girlfriend to Roy Kent. Uh, I know she's done other things, uh, a lot of British work, but I it's the only thing that is that is like in like my face just because I'm currently going through the last season of Ted Lasso. So. Uh, but yeah, I think she's a wonderful actress. I've heard the name. I can't say I, I've seen her in anything. Have you seen Ted Lasso? I haven't yet. So you're just waiting for all three seasons so you can binge them all at once? There you go. Just so everybody's aware, you can probably get three months free right now for uh, Apple+. Plus. So that's what I got. And uh, moving on to deaths, this actor we all know and love, but I think that we're stuck in time with him. Uh, Lee Van Cleef. Yep. When I was doing the research on him, I'm like, you know what? I, I, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm definitely stuck in time with him because it was the movies that he, the, the spaghetti westerns that he did. That's it. So Clarence Leroy Van Cleef Jr. That's a fucking name. That is a name. That is a fun. junior means, I mean, somebody else was like, you know what? You too. So they, they basically, <laughs> I guess his nickname must've been Lee, right? Cause Leroy. Yeah. Um, but it's also spelled capital L E capital R O Y. So Leroy, maybe even Leroy, Clarence Leroy Van Cleef. Clasping it up. Yeah. American actor. He appeared in over 170 films and television roles in a career spanning nearly 40 years. Uh, but obviously best known for the spaghetti westerns that I mentioned, right? Um, born and raised in New Jersey. Uh, Van uh, served in the, in the United States Army during World War II aboard a minesweeper. He earned the Bronze Star for his actions. After acting on stage in, in National Original Theater, he made his film debut in the Oscar-winning Western High Noon in a non-speaking outlaw cast role. With uh, this distinctive angular features and taciturn screen persona, Van Cleef was typecast as minor villain and supporting player in westerns and crime dramas. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
But yeah, he 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 again. He he ran through all the TV shows that people ran through during that time, right? The Untouchables, The Rifleman, uh, The Alaskan, Half Gun Will Travel. He did Andy Griffith. He did Laramie Bonanza, Gunsmoke. I mean, just everything, right? And then Sergio Leone offered him the co-leading role for a few for a few dollars more. Became a box office draw, huge in Europe. Um, the last movie that I remember watching him in was Escape from New York. He's the guy who, who grabs Snake Plissken and is like, "Hey, you know, he's that, mm. he's that guy." Okay. Um, but yeah, uh, died at the age of sixty-four from a heart attack. That that um, I thought that was cool. I mean, you know, it's cool to honor him because, again, like, I, I, you know, like I can think of Eli Wallach when I think of the spaghetti westerns. But he was yeah. only in one, you know. But Eli Wallach transcends and then does like Magnificent Seven, and he's also in the Batman '66 show. So he did a lot more. Um, but the spaghetti westerns are Sergio Leone, Eastwood, and Van Cleef. Like they yeah. are the three. Like they're, they're together, and obviously Ennio. The good, the bad, and the ugly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 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 but yeah, no, I always thought he looked. He like I think that like the, the way they mentioned here, he had very angular features. Like when you see him, his eyes are slit and they're like very sharp. His like his nose again, very like you know pointy. His, his jawline, he had a very distinct look. Yeah, yeah. And and yes, you know what? I can see him being typecast as a minor villain. He just looks like a bad guy. He looks a little villainous. Yeah, he does. He does. All right, Gabe. Moving on to. Films. Back to the Future, Part Two, directed by Robert Zemeckis from uh, the screenplay by Bob Gale. I was like, why does that name sound familiar? Bob Gale goes on to have a very successful writing career in comics in the nineties. Oh, he wrote like for Batman and Spider Man. Isn't that like huh. to to write to write Back to the Future Two and then be end up writing comic books is pretty fucking cool. That is interesting. Um, yeah, uh, the second of the of the franchise of the films it stars uh, Michael J. Fox, Christopher Lloyd, Leah Thompson, uh, Thomas F. Wilson, and Elizabeth Shue. As we all recall, the actress from the first uh, Back to the Future who plays the girlfriend isn't recast for part two, so Elizabeth Shue takes over, and they actually they actually refilmed the ending of part one shot for shot in order to begin the movie with that same sequence because the movie starts with the ending of part one and goes right into part two. Yeah. And, and they had to reshoot it like shot for shot in order to make it look exactly the same except with the new actors because then she continues on being in that movie. I thought that was I guess that's one of the advantages of doing time because you can you can have minor changes. Just be like, oh, you know, shit happens when you <laughs> slight differences when you mess with the timeline. That's actually a very good point. So in this movie, we go from 85 to 2015. Ah, well into the future. Doc Brown comes back and says, Marty, your kids. That's my Doc Brown. That's my Christopher Lloyd. I'm sticking to it. (laughs) But basically, he has to go into the future and like try to save his kids from doing something stupid. (laughs) That will ruin them. The trial of every parent. Yes, yes. Um, $40 million budget was filmed back to back with with, uh, part three, by the way. All right, they were already sold. They were on board. They were exactly. Now, forty million dollar budget for both films. It seems like 
what do you think? Well, how much do you think this movie made? Part two. I had to make like two hundred million. Yeah. Would you say it was more or less successful than part one? I would guess more because the first one, the popularity, and then, I mean, I guess they knew they were doing three already, so you can't say, well, there's a third one, but I think more. Okay, so the first one made $300 million. Oh, I, I didn't remember that. <laughs> so the second one made $332 million. But I was right. It was more successful. I it just was. had memory. It was. Now, there is an interesting thing, right? So Crispin Glover, right? Crispin Glover, he plays the... The young, the young, well, also the old, and the old dad of Marty McFly. He didn't want to come back for part two. There was some disagreement on the story, but they used his likeness, and they even had an actor and they put prosthetics on him, and they put him in background shots and in scenes, but just never giving him like you know full full camera, um, and basically used his likeness in part two, which is which is very interesting because. Crispin Glover filed the lawsuit against the producers of the film on the grounds that they did not own his likeness, nor had the permission to use it. As a result of the suit, there are now clauses in the Screen Actors Guild collective bargaining agreement stating that producers and actors are not allowed to use such methods to reproduce the, the likeness of other actors. So his 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 lawsuit basically set a precedent. Set a precedent. Uh, it was also settled out of court, just for the record. <laughs> <laughs> he got paid for his role, I'm assuming. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, but the case uh, the case basically um, is key in in a lot of the personality rights for actors. Uh, That's good, you know, especially with the increase of special effects and 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 digital techniques that we're going into now. Um, you know, but but yeah, it 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 uh, it helped kind of like not allow this to continue. Yeah. And now it makes more sense than ever, you know. Like I remember Tron Two when they when they like did the de aging on um, on um, Jeff Bridges, and I I imagine they did it for the new Indiana Jones, right? Yeah, you know. So look, I I would love if in the future we just have digital versions of everyone that we can bring back Jack Nicholson, we can bring back a young young Eastwood. I would love that. I have would have no problem with that. Um. I think that should be the future, but you know, there is there is somebody who owns rights to these people's likeness. So, I, but, yeah. But I think it would Plus, be amazing. I don't trust the studios not to abuse it. True, true. And my concern with abusing it, honestly, is that they do it for the wrong people. <laughs> <laughs> they do it for the wrong people, and also they uh, they start to you know disregard the uh viability or uh rights of other of other individuals right well like if you could have eastwood would you ignore somebody new oh i wasn't even oh you're way ahead of me i was thinking of like yes use it for eastwood yes use it for i can't like i don't want to use that name so you know what's interesting here's here's this makes me think of something i had heard recently about um, so James Earl Jones made an agreement with uh, Disney that they are once he can no longer do it or, or whatever they are they are allowed to recreate his voice for Darth Vader. I, I remember reading about that. Yeah. So that like that was a obviously he a specific choice and you know it's understandable he is iconic 
and that character is iconic and therefore you know and if anyone if they're going to spend that at this point the money and the cost to recreate like that's where you're going to do it is on somebody like that or mark hamill right they 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 did him for the mandalorian huh well they did the de-aging and stuff yes and um, but, but they also did well it they for... also they did a they they did digitally recreate on an actor yeah and then uh, Carrie Fisher. I don't too, know right? if they're allowed to just do that. No, but that's what I was going to say. I was actually going to go lead into that, right? So two things: do it with people that are worth it, right? Don't don't bring back, you know. Um, I'm trying to think of a bad. Oh man, now you got to pick someone real specific. OJ, <laughs> don't bring back OJ Simpson, okay? <laughs> but I was watching that's the documentary. Funny. I was watching the documentary on Sidney Poitier, and. I, I almost teared up a little bit. I'm not going to lie. He was barely ma- he was about to get discovered in Hollywood and they had offered him a really good role, a good paying role, like what he would have made in a year he would have made in this film. And the role was of a janitor who did something right that that and he turned it down because he said, it's not that I wouldn't do that, he said, but it's something it's my father wouldn't do that. And he said, and it's you know, like I grew up on his morals. I grew up on his beliefs. And, you know, if I if I decided to do that, that would be a reflection on him. So I wasn't turning it down necessarily for me, but I, I was turning it down because of the morals that I grew up with and the person that I represent. So it's one of those things where I'm like, yes, you could bring back Sidney Poitier, but don't put him in a stupid film where it would go against his beliefs. And like, you know, so it's, it's a very, like you said, it's a slippery slope. I can't trust that they're not going to ruin Gene Wilder's legacy by putting him in, in, in Willy Wonka meets Frankenstein monster, you know? It also gets into a weird thing where like, even if there are rights of the estate, how far does that, how long does that go on? Like, is your image forever, you know, because you're famous, Ooh, does your do we likeness become- forever be, get passed down to other people who will eventually sell out, you know, when the, you know, when need and time and, or a hundred years from now, right. Am I public domain? Yeah. Is my image public domain? Especially if you created a character, right? Mm -hmm. If you, if you like, what's it like, what's one actor who's played the exact, like Mr. Bean, right? That is a character that it was created. It was, it did not exist before, uh, uh, Rowan Atkinson. Rowan Atkinson, yeah. Um, but in a hundred years, Mr. Bean is a character. It is not Rowan Atkins. It is Atkinson. It is a character. So can somebody then say, "Well, it's free to use. I I can turn him into a mass murderer now." It, you know, like what's uh, Winnie the Pooh? Yeah, Blood and Blood Honey. Blood and Honey, <laughs> exactly. You know, I wonder if that counts. Mr. For... Bean, Blood and Honey. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's interesting. That's in... like I said, I'm all for technology, dude. I'm all for. Because, you know, like, you feed AI information, right? You feed a voice, you feed, and then that voice yeah. can say things. But at the same time, I don't want a hundred, you know, the hundredth album from Tupac in, in 20 years. I don't. The biggest problem is that people, society and people, do not move as fast as the technology does. And the best illustration of that is trying to watch, like, a, a congressional hearing on anything to do with how to manage technology or how to how to safeguard because it 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 highlights and um it magnifies a problem that kind of i think does exist overall because like yeah you've got like gen z or whatever who's the most up 
you know, or they're probably not anymore. There's probably what, what's the one after them now? Did we go all the way back, back around to Alpha? Is no, Gen Alpha. Oh, that's a good question. Because there's another generation after Gen Z now. But like whatever, right? Like the youngest generation will always be the most hip to whatever the trends and whatever's going on. But like you watch a bunch of octogenarians and and their ilk try to figure out how email works still when they're talking about stuff in a congressional hearing. And it is it's funny in a real sad way. It's funny in a real sad way. <laughs> that's just because they can't they can't not, figure it out. They that's, can't that's not funny at that point then, Gabe. <laughs> well, so like the only congressional hearing I've ever watched with any uh, real serious amount of time was when they had the um, the uh, uh, Department of uh, Personnel and Manpower breach. Uh huh. And it was cathartic to watch the people who mismanaged that get yelled at by people who actually had some skin in the game because there's a fair number of of veterans in politics and they're just like, that's my info. So they actually did give a shit. Um. So there was some. Uh, there was some um, there was some vindication in watching that, but like it still was sad. Moving on to Born on the Fourth of July, have you seen this film? I haven't. Okay, Bi- biographical anti-war drama film based on the autobiography of Ron Kovic, directed by Oliver Stone, written by Stone and Kovic, and it stars Tom Cruise. Kira Sedwick, Raymond J. Berry, Jerry Levine, Frank Whaley, and William Defoe. The film depicts the life of Kobik, played by Cruz, over a 20-year period, detailing his childhood, his military service, paralysis during the Vietnam War, and his transformation to anti-war activism. I've I've seen this film. I don't, I I think it's it's uh it's okay. Nothing against it. It's just it, it's a it's a good it's a good Oliver Stone film. But um, but I remember it being good. It's one of it's an Oliver Stone '80s film. It's a it's an epic film. It really is. It um, it got nominated for a bunch of things. It, Oliver Stone got best director for it, and I think best film editing. Seventeen million dollar budget went on to make one hundred and sixty one million. So successful. Yes, very successful. Very. Among the people that were considered for the role. Uh, Sean Penn, Charlie Sheen, and Nicolas Cage, which would have been an interesting film. Charlie Sheen, can you imagine yes. trying to do anything serious? Well, no, but remember, he was in Platoon. He was in, he Oliver, was in Platoon, he was, yes. And Oliver Stone already had experience with him, so that would have been... I, I In my head, I was like, Nicolas Cage would have been interesting. I, but I mean, Nicolas Cage... Cage been, that was the most yeah. interesting name. Yeah, yeah. So, with that, the the studios were... were were concerned with Cruz doing a um, a dramatic film role, because right? at this point he had he had he had just come off of Top Gun, which you know not the most dramatic. dramatic, yeah, not the most dramatic. <laughs> um, Stone in particular had dismissed his previous film, Top Gun, Ouch. Uh, as a as a fascist movie. <laughs> But expressed that he had, was drawn by the actor's golden boy image. So the whole because the movie goes from this high school kid with a bunch of you know ideas of serving his country and and, and doing his duty to then being you know jaded by the fact that he <laughs> he ends up you know losing the use of his legs, ends up in a wheelchair and a Vietnam veteran during a time when they were not liked. So no, he, none of the support our troops stuff. Yeah, so he liked the idea of like 
taking the golden boy and, and you know and taking the the golden part out of him but leaving the boy type of thing I, I, is my understanding of that of that yeah no again it was a it was a fine film i i, I just you know not a movie i would say was like a must watch my only pop culture reference to it is from family guy <laughs> why does that not surprise me gabe born on the 4th of july too born on the 5th of july <laughs> Um, the movie Glory. I believe you've said you've watched this, right? Ooh, uh, I'm not a hundred percent sure. Tell me about it. So this is the. It's about the 54th Massachusetts Infantry Regiment, which was one of the Union's uh, earliest African American regiments during the Civil War. Uh, it stars Matthew Broderick. Uh, it has. Denzel Washington, Gary Hughes, or Carrie Hughes, and Morgan Freeman, and they, it's about it's the story of them being formed, and obviously them dying. Uh, spoiler alert: <laughs> they don't make it. Uh, I think I have. I went through a pretty uh, intense Civil War uh, learning uh, period, and watched a lot of movies, read a lot of books uh, during high, like my high school time. But, you know, it was a fantastic film. Though. Matthew Broderick was fa fantastic in it. There is... Um, so, at the end of the film, like I mentioned, they do all die. And because it's a war, they all get thrown into an unmarked grave, right? And the, the, the South soldiers thought it would be disgraceful, right, to throw in the white colonel. Matthew Broderick, as you know, Gabe, is, is white. Um, he I've played, heard. He played uh, Colonel Shaw. You know, they thought that disgracing his dead body was putting it into an unmarked grave with a bunch of black bodies. Um, so that's where he was buried. And uh, his family was like, no, that's that. That's where, you know, that's after, what he wanted. Yeah, well, after the war, they were they were like, oh, you know, we can give him the burial. He goes, no, that's that's where he was buried. He was buried with his men. Yeah, with and his that, men. Yeah. So I thought that was interesting. But yeah, this was a, a role that got um, <laughs> Denzel Washington. <laughs> The perspective is just like, you know, like, haha, we got you. They're like, no, no, like, <laughs> that's what you think. <laughs> so, look at him. Look at him being buried with his men all black and stuff. Um, that's a you problem, Sal. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but yeah, Denzel Washington got the Oscar for Best Supporting Actor. It, and it, it won Oscar for Best Sound and it won an Oscar for uh, Best Cinematography. Again, it's a wonderful film. It really is. It, uh, there's a scene that I remember that, that still, actually, it, it's one of those true scenes where because they were, you know, they were black, they weren't getting paid the same as the white, uh, white enlisted. And he refused his pay until they all got the same pay, you know. So it was, again, real thing that actually happened and they did it well in the film. The North's like, no, we're the good guys. We're not racist. By the way, you're not getting paid as much. Like, well, you got to bring it up, Gabe. Why can't you just let Wait it go? Wait a minute. <laughs> you ever think we're the baddies? <laughs> what was that scene? It was like, you know, the flag, right? With the skull and bones. Are we the bad guys? <laughs> All the black leather. Uh, Ghostbusters 2 comes out in 1989, Gabe. Directed by Ivan Reitman and written by Dan Aykroyd and Harold Ramis. The entire cast comes back. Uh, made $215 million. Now, the reason why there isn't much to say about this is because 
Ghostbusters 2 was good, but it was no Ghostbusters 1. This is, this is true. Because I remember that movie starts with, like, they got rid of all the ghosts, and now they're useless, so they're not cool anymore. And then there's a, a, a hate goo that is growing in the sewers of, of New York because everyone's hate has created some some bad guy that's using it as a way to re- yeah it was okay it was it was a little bit of a stretch it was and and apparently it, it took some some convincing to do because i guess the cast wasn't that great working with each other and working with a crew so it seems like they weren't having as much fun as they might have been having in part one is what i'm saying right that's but, uh, fair. look it's, it's an okay it, it's it's a good film but it is no part one i'm just gonna put it no. out there it's gonna put it out there. All right, moving on to yet again, Sylvester Stallone making uh, making an appearance. This movie is amazing. It's called Tango and Cash. Have you seen Tango and Cash, Gabe? I have not seen Tango and Cash, but let, I've absolutely heard of it. Let me tell you about the Buddy Cup action comedy starring Sylvester Stallone and Kurt Russell, with Jack Palance as the bad guy. Stallone and Russell star as Raymond Tango and Gabriel Cash, two rival LAPD narcotics detectives who are wor- who are forced to work together after the criminal mastermind frames both of them for murder. Okay, now here's the interesting part: the budget for this film was fifty-four million dollars, and I was like, even for Stallone standard, that's a lot of money. Yeah, that does sound like a lot. That's a lot of money. Now, it made 120, so it got its money back. But apparently, there was quite a bit of drama during the filming and post-production, right? The film was known as The Setup and was based on a script by Randy Feldman and uh, from an idea uh, Stallone had. Sylvester Stallone and Patrick Swayze were signed up to star in the film, by the way. That would have been an interesting movie. That would um, and uh, Andrei Konchalovsky had been signed to direct, but Swayze dropped out to go and star in Road, uh, Roadhouse. I think he made the right choice. I'm just going to put it out there. And he was replaced by Kurt Russell. Sebastian Stallone had the original director of photography fired, and he hired the guy who he had used in uh, Lockup. Anyway, post-production cost $20 million. Oh... They went through three directors in the film, by the way. Damn. Yeah. So it was a, a a mixed bag of filming and editing in order to get the final product. Now, look, I, I've seen Tango and Cash more than once. It's entertaining. It's ridiculous, but it's entertaining. Especially, by the way, if I said to you Tango and Cash, right? And I said to you, it's about an odd couple, right? One is straight-laced by the book, you know, studious one is you know rigs from uh from um lethal weapon right just a loose cannon who would you cast in those roles you mean which of those would i pick of those two names no no like who do you think sylvester Stallone is and who do you think kurt russell is oh oh uh i mean i suppose you'd pick kurt russell to be straight laced and stallone to be the loose cannon you would i would but imagine Stallone wearing studious glasses and a suit with a tie because he is the straight-laced one. Yeah, that's that's a bit odd. Yeah. No, that movie was... Again, it's it's a fun, entertaining movie. 
but it is not a good movie. It's going to put it out there. Speaking of Swayze, Next of Kin. Have you heard of this one? I have definitely heard of it. I've not seen that. Directed by John Irwin and starring Patrick Swayze and Liam Neeson with Adam Baldwin, Helen Hunt, Bill Paxton, and Ben Stiller in one of his earliest roles. Patrick Swayze plays Detective Truman, a Chicago cop, who sets out to find the killer of his brother. Meanwhile, another of his brothers, hillbillies, decide to find the killer themselves. So it's the story of Patrick Swayze, who was with Hillbilly, who went to the city and became a city cop. His brother gets killed while visiting him, and the entire Hillbilly village comes to hunt for that man, and they use their Hillbilly ways, their hound dogs and everything, to, to, to find this man. Another great thing about this movie is Liam Neeson doing a hillbilly accent. It's pretty, it's pretty good. It's pretty fucking good. It's pretty fucking good. I can tell you that it was a $12 million budget that only made $15 million. Got its money back. It did. It did. Hillbilly justice is not a big draw to the box office, you say? <laughs> not in the 80s. But I imagine things have changed, right? Because, <laughs> you know, all those... You know what it was? I imagine... Did you ever watch Deliverance? Or are you familiar with Deliverance? No, I'm familiar with it, though. I imagine it, it was probably like, oh, well, that was successful. Maybe we should try to make our own Hillbilly Justice movie. You know, they just didn't have Kurt... Uh, Burt Reynolds. They just didn't have Burt Reynolds. Yeah. Now, this movie, I can tell you right now, was not good, but it sticks out in my head because I watched it a bunch of times. Red Scorpion, starring Dolph Lundgren. Lundgren appears as a Soviet Special Forces operative sent to assassinate an anti-communist rebel leader in Africa, only to side with the rebels. It is a ridiculous film. I knew he was a good one. Uh, but yes, a ridiculous film that just... Uh, uh, there's, I think it made six million, but it was Duff Lundgren venturing away and out on his own after. Yeah, you know, I don't know if I would say watch it, but it it happened. That movie exists and it happened. <laughs> Part of history. Yes, honorable mentions. These are these are amazing to me. Let's start with the easy honorable mention. Um, Do the right thing, written and directed by Spike Lee. It stars uh, Spike Lee, Danny Aiello, Ozzy Davis, Ruby Lee. Richard Edson, Giancarlo Esposito, Bill Nunn, John Turturro, and Samuel Jackson. It, and is the feature film debut of Martin Lawrence and Rosie Perez. The story explores a Brooklyn neighborhood's simmering racial tensions between its African-American residents and the Italian-American owners of a local pizzeria, culminating in tragedy and violence on a hot summer day. If you've seen a Spike Lee film it, from the late 80s, early 90s, very much that. $6 million budget, $37 million gross. It made his career. It made Spike Lee's career. It's a good film. I say it's an honorable mention because it, it was one of those films that did not change me. It's just a great film for uh, you know an indie up-and-coming writer-director. Good film. Fair. Just wanted to mention that. Now, the good stuff, though. There's three horror films that come out from a franchise that we're all very familiar with. Nightmare on Elm Street 5, The Dream Child. I will tell you right now that these movies make money compared to their budget. <laughs> <laughs> Proportionally. They make three times their budget. I'll say that. So this film is about Freddy Krueger, and this is so far-fetched. Freddy Krueger 
as we know, attacks you in your dreams, right? What if Freddy Krueger was using a pregnant woman's baby's dreams to attack you in your dreams? Wow. Exactly. He's playing 4D chess, and we're playing checkers. Right? This dude is at least five steps ahead of us. Uh, Halloween 5, The Revenge of Michael Myers, the fifth installment of the Hollywood. Is he the one that should be getting revenge? I was going to say, here's what the premise of this film is. It follows Mike Myers, who again, by the way, the fact that they put again in the description, returns to the town of Haydenfield to murder his niece, who, who, traumatized from his previous attack on her, has been institutionalized following her attempt to murder her foster mother. It's amazing. It's amazing that that was part five, and we're, I think, at 10 at this point. Yeah. Um, Again, made it made a, a twelve million dollars off of like half of less than half of that. Friday the Thirteenth Part Eight, Jason takes Manhattan. Set several years after the events of The New Blood, this film follows Jason as he stalks a group of high school graduates on a ship en route to New York City. I feel like Jason stalks blank is every. Friday the 13th. It's like on the board. That's the permanent. They put that in permanent marker on the idea board, and then they just <laughs> fill in. It's almost ad libs, right? Jason stocks blank on blank. Yeah. Yeah. They just, they just, they just have a brainstorming session until something sticks. Because honestly, was it Jason X? Jason stocks scientist on a space station. <laughs> But yeah, it's, it's incredible. It's perfect. Again, three times, uh, made three times its budget. It's Can't a, even be mad. It's a recipe that works, goddammit. Uh, first appearances, Terry Hatcher. I don't care what she does in her life. She will always be Lois Lane to me from the adventures of Lois and Clark. Okay. She will always be my Lois. Um, Just like Dean Kane will always be my Superman. Sam Rockwell. Clown House is the name of the movie he first appeared in, but doesn't matter because Sam Rockwell. Thank God for the world for Sam Rockwell. Molly Shannon in a movie called The Phantom of the Opera, which sounds very sounds a bit serious considering she ends up being one of the greatest SNL cast members. Yeah, so it was a it was a a very a very dramatic start, and and I always have trouble with her name because I always want to say. Kristen, but it's Kirsten, Kirsten Dunst, uh, in a movie called New York Stories, which I, and I'm gonna have to look this up, but I believe that's a that's a Woody Allen film, right? Oh, I don't know. I um, I will tell you right off, now. Huh? New York Stories, American anthology film consisting of three segments, segments with the central theme being New York City. Oh, okay. This is different. Uh, the first is Life Lessons, directed by Martin Scorsese. The second is Life Without Zoe, directed by Francis Ford Coppola. And the last is Oedipus Rex. Oh, spelled W-R-E-C-K-S. That's clever. Direct, I get it. Directed, written, and starring Woody Allen. Okay, that's why I was thinking Woody Allen. All right. But yeah. Oh, interesting. Yeah, she goes on to, I think, Two incredible roles, right? Um, Bring It On 
and uh, Mary Jane Parker. No, Mary Jane Parker. No, no. Is that her name? I mean, it's Watson. But she Parker ends up eventually. Marrying... Yeah, I mean, okay. In the comics. They, Isn't that amazing? Which timeline? Isn't that amazing how I went with Mary Jane Parker? Okay. But anyway, those are the two <laughs> roles that I remember her from. I'm sure she's done other things. I'm sure she's done other great things, but that's the only two I remember her from. Wasn't she uh, Jumanji as a kid? Oh, shit. And uh, Interview with a Vampire. She was also a kid in that. Oh, wow. Yeah. Babe. Look at you. So you must have been real young. That's true. Now that I think about that. Because her, she was a kid in... How old is... <laughs> uh, okay, Wikipedia. How old is... <laughs> she was uh, She was six in this role. She was six in this role. And then she goes on to do... Oh, she was in the Virgin Suicides, too, with uh, Josh... Um, okay. Uh, Interview with the Vampire was 94. What about Bonfire of the Vanities? Hang on, hang on, hang on. So she was six in 89. So she was... What, how is this math? Hang on. <laughs> She was 11 or 12 for uh, Interview with the Vampire? That's impressive. I guess that's how numbers work. <laughs> okay, Gabe. Don't ask me. <laughs> okay. God damn it, Gabe. I don't, I don't, I don't touch the things. <laughs> no, the, dude, she was a prolific actress then at 11 years old to be able to keep up with yeah. Antonio Banderas, Brad Pitt, and Tom Cruise. And that same year, Gabe, or no, actually a year later, so she's 12 or 13 for Jumanji. She was a uh, uh, age three as a child fashion model when she started working. So Holy you know cow. she was already she was already well into her career. Holy cow! And she was in her early twenties for Spider Man. She was probably twenty years old for Spider Man or, or twenty one. Man, good for her. She was in Star Trek: The Next Generation. My God! You know what? Everything good for her. Good for her. With the minutes we have, Gabe, any uh, something ultimately new you got for us this week? What have you been watching? I mean, the big thing was I saw Spider-Man across the Spider-Verse. I got to ask, and without spoilers, is it as amazing as I think it's going to be? Yes. Easy yes for me. That's all I need to hear. That movie looks I, awesome. I'm, I am impressed at the... They seem to have like... like the I love the first one. Into the Spider-Verse was great. That was mm -hmm. a great movie they've managed to maintain that quality of storytelling while upping the ante on everything, of course, and like telling a bigger, like a bigger story, more things. And then just the layers, like it is, I think a, uh, a masterpiece of like fan service mm -hmm. because like, it's unobtrusive. Like if you know certain things, there'll be layers to it. But like, even if you don't, it's still good. And everything was done with intention like here's something that's spoiler free that i can tell you so like the opening credits like where they like, like where they do this the sony like <laughs> image the comic fonts that it flashes through all represent something they all oh, they're not wow. random they all mean they're all referential to specific things so every bit of the the little visual stuff they do and things there's also another interesting thing that um i don't even think we have the full details yet but there's at least two versions in theaters of the movie. There's slight changes. Oh. Because the whole multiverse thing, there's slight lines are slightly different That's from a couple of the characters. The imaging and the way they do in a couple of scenes is slightly different. But like, 
I, I don't know how deep the rabbit hole goes or what all that means yet because I haven't found anything that could tell me. Nice. But, oh, yeah. very cool. Very cool. It's very good. Yeah, no, that's definitely one that I'm looking forward to. Unfortunately, I have to wait till it's available for rental or something because it's just not something I can find time for in the theater. I also just don't like people anymore. Any <laughs> like people even less now. Um, there it is. But yeah, no, I'm definitely looking forward to that. That that, that the first one I still watch, so it's it's a it's such a great film. Very good. And then again, it's just like it's a it's a feast for the eyes, and it's um, it's I, I mean I don't think I'm an expert on storytelling, but like if it it was I thought it was very good storytelling too. So like they maintained their quality throughout, and there's just so much fun to be had afterwards. Because again, I'm not enough of a comic buff to know a lot of these things on my own like independently i don't go like oh i recognize xyz version of spider-man or this character or this whatever but like learning it after the fact is is still fun for me i'm gonna try to one-up you and tell you that i watched the flash and again whatever you feel about ezra miller and what he did the fact that this movie was made before any of that came out it is a movie that feeds into every one of us that is a fan of Michael Keaton's Batman. Plain and fucking simple. The first 10 minutes has the current world, right, with Ben Affleck in one of the worst Batman costumes I've ever seen. I'm not going to lie. That Maybe cost- it was for comparative purposes. Maybe. Let's make people even more nostalgic. <laughs> the colors are great because they're very nostalgic to the, to the comics. But... The skull that they put on the mask, the 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 clip on, you know, tied on vest that he, it's just it doesn't make any sense. But anyway, the movie's lighthearted. It's comedic. Um, Ezra Miller's a good actor. It's unfortunate that he's 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 going through this mental collapse. But Michael Keaton as Batman, dude. Oh my God, it is it is uh, it is exactly it's 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 exactly what we all wanted it to be, and it is that. And then you know, there's a good story. There's a there's a heartfelt you know moment of uh, what's the best way to say it? Like mommy issues, you know, daddy issues, like dealing, you know, pulling out the heartstrings type of thing. But no, it was so much fun. It really was, and and they they took it lighthearted. They played. They had fun with it. It's so unfortunate that it has this stigma with it because of of Ezra Miller, because right. it because it is a very good fun superhero film, like in the in the in the in line with like what Marvel has done, you know, with their early work where where you're not taking it completely serious, but it's it's got its serious moments. But um the Batwing, Michael Keaton, like it's just it's it's fan service at its at its highest. It's so good. So good. Okay, let me say this. It's so fun. It's so fun. I looked up an image to try to get a comparison, and I, you're right. The colors are they they're good. They're classic colors, but like, what is with the yeah the exactly like honeycomb weirdness with the armor? I can't get a good picture of his. And there's a there's that, a there's like, a it's... part there's a part where like you can see that it's that honeycomb thing is like attached with rope, and it just doesn't make any sense. It it must be armor, but they just did such a poor job with it. Yeah, and the scowl, it makes sense when it's straight head on but when he's just talking and that's there it's very disturbing <laughs> and, and and it just doesn't make any sense um but yeah can't pull it off can't can't pull it off like van cleef 
No, no, cannot. And again, like I said, I just I was gonna try to one up you, but I'm still very jealous of you having watched um, into the into the across the Spider Verse. All right, thank you for listening. Um, as we mentioned, we have an episode four coming, and uh, we might have a guest. You never know. Maybe they'll show up. Maybe they won't. Maybe uh, we'll resend our uh, invitation. Maybe we won't. Things happen. <laughs> Find us at Pop Culture Hangfire on your Instagram. And um, thank you for listening. Like, I know we don't do this for listeners, but it's nice to see that there's an audience. At the end of the day... Gratifying. It is gratifying. No, but I was going to say, at the end of the day, this is a chronicle of conversations that I'm having with my friend that will live on for the rest. It's our legacy. At this point, Gabe, you and I will live forever in these conversations because once they're in the internet, they're there forever. Maybe uh, they'll become public domain at some point. And maybe someday somebody will make we'll a, mo- a movie. They'll make the pop culture hang fire blood and honey film. <laughs> but, <laughs> but yeah, uh, what started as that has found some sort of audience. And I, I think that's, that's very cool because I think somebody I was, re- I was listening to uh, uh, flea flea has a podcast where he talks about musical education and, and, and in it, he quotes somebody else and I forget who now, and I feel terrible about that, but they, they asked that other person who's a a really great guitar player. They're like, what do you think of Kurt Cobain? And his answer was, I think he knew exactly how much he needed to know about music to express what he wanted to say. And I thought that was the most poignant answer to something. What are you doing? And if the answer is I'm expressing myself and I'm doing it with the amount of information and knowledge and, 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 and things that I've learned to express myself, that's the right answer. And I think you and I, I think we're there. We are expressing ourselves with everything we've learned about ourselves and about technology and everything that works the way we want to. Like this is for those of you who don't know, this is all scripted. We, 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 we practice this. We, we have rewrites. We have writing sessions. All scripted, guys. None of this is brand new. <laughs> it's Mad Libs. We got the uh, stocks. Stocks has conversation about X. Yes. In X. In X. <laughs> um, but yeah, but it made me think about that. And I'm like, oh, you know what? Yeah, we're not doing more than what we're supposed to do. We're literally doing exactly what we're supposed to be able to do in the most in the best possible way and that is exactly what i hope to accomplish from this uh, and again the fact that we we have an audience is is gravy on the train that is running on on, on biscuit wheels it's pretty good actually. i like it i like it's it too. It's, it is it is so yeah. you can also put honey on biscuits so that leads into the you know it's funny i've never put uh, gravy on biscuits so i don't even know why <laughs> Because that's the normal, you know, that's normal, right? Breakfast, biscuits and gravy, yeah. Yeah, I've never put uh, gravy because I don't know what gravy is made out of. Unless I make it myself. Yeah, that's fair. Gravy is a suspicious food in public. Yeah, but I've definitely put honey on biscuits and they're delicious because of the salty content and the friedness of the biscuit with fried chicken, obviously. But yeah, but I think we've uh, veered off our message here, Gabe. Um, A little bit. Yeah, thanks for listening. Talk to you next week.